Asset Podcast. I'm Philip, your representative of the External Committee and your host for today's episode. With us today, we have Professor Denny Pankratov, an assistant professor at Concordia University. This will be his third year working with the Department of Computer Science and Software Engineering. Professor Pankratov's main research interests are complexity theory and algorithm design. Hello, Professor Pankratov. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very good. Thanks for asking. I'm very happy to be part of the episode today. This is my first one. I'm very happy to be here too. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's, it's, it's our pleasure. In today's episode, we will talk about complexity theory and what are its applications in different scenarios, such as computational science and algorithm design. We will then touch on the topic of algorithm design, mostly talking about what it is, what are its uses, and what its research entails. Finally, we will discuss the millennium problem, P versus NP, which, which is a question that is so hard to answer, whoever solves it is rewarded 1 million US dollars. All right, so let's start off with the presentation to our, of our guest speaker. Tell us about yourself, Professor Mankratov. Tell us about your career path. All right, so I will try to be brief, but um, I'll start at the beginning. So my first interest in computer science at large started at a fairly early age. And uh, as many people, I got interested in it mainly through computer games. Uh, and I was attracted to the fact that once you learn programming languages and uh, you start creating programs, within this uh, space of software, you have kind of powers to create anything you want. And that sort of creativity was really attractive to me. I got uh, quite a strong education in mathematics in uh, Russia. Uh, and then uh, for my bachelor, I did it at the University of Toronto. And uh, initially when I was at U of T, just doing bachelor, I was interested in more applied uh, research. So I started doing some systems research, mainly with uh, mobile phones. But later uh, my interest shifted towards uh, computer science theory. I got uh, more and more attracted to uh, mathematical aspects of computation. And I started doing research uh, with uh, Alan Boredin on um, satisfiability, which is one of the NP-hard problems. Then for my master's and PhD, I did those at the University of Chicago. And that's where I really dove into complexity theory and information theory and communication complexity in particular. Uh, and towards the end of the PhD, I had um, that question that I think a lot of graduate students have. Do I want to go to academia? Do I want to go into industry? That's a big question on the mind. So uh, I decided to try out the uh, industry and I did an internship at Google in uh, networking. Now, after that, uh, uh, I realized that actually academia is something that I want to stick with. Uh, internship went very well, so it's not to bash on Google or anything. And um, uh, I got a postdoc at the University of Toronto, where I uh, continued working on complexity theory, but I started branching out a little bit. And I did some work on proof complexity and also started uh, to work more and more in the area of online algorithms. And after postdoc, I came to Concordia, and now I'm focusing even more on online algorithms and different uh, exploration problems and so forth. So that's uh, my story. It's very cool. It's it's uh, quite fitting that um, 
your purpose, no, not your purpose, rather, your main focus is uh, online algorithms when we're all doing all this schoolwork online. <laughs> That's true, but it's a different kind of online. In online <laughs> algorithms, the nature of online mostly refers to irrevocable decisions. So you need to make a decision right now and you cannot change it. That's essentially the nature of life. I guess so. Oh, too philosophical for me. <laughs> <laughs> now, please, uh, let's open the discussion by talking about complexity theory. Uh, Professor Fankoratov, you mentioned complexity theory, comp uh, computational theory, and communication theory. Uh, what exactly um, is it? Can you please explain it? And what are the core differences between these uh, three branches of complexity? Yeah. So um, at a high level, suppose that you have some problem that you wish to solve and uh, you have some limited resources. And uh, those uh, resources could be really anything of importance to you. For example, in computation, uh, typical resources are time and uh, space or memory, maybe also amount of parallelism that you have in your system. In communication network, your resource could be bandwidth, interconnectedness, and so on and so forth. In, uh, for instance, proof theory, where you study how proofs are constructed formally, there the notion of a resource might be size of the proof, number of lines in your proof. And so um, in order to study uh, the limitations of these resources, uh, you want uh, to approach it more formal. So in order to actually define what complexity means, you need to uh, do some preparatory work. Like for example, you first want to describe a model within uh, which will also define the set of problems that you can analyze within that model. So for instance, in computation, a standard model that is uh, fairly known to everyone or people have at least heard about it is Turing machines. And what Turing machines do is they model uh, essentially a modern computer to a certain extent, to a very uh, accurate extent uh, within polynomial factors. Now, if you want to study com uh, communication resources, you would need to define a communication model mathematically. So that would be something like distributed computing or two-party communication. In proof theory, you also need to describe a model within which you're looking at proofs, like for instance, cutting planes and so on. So I understand that some of these uh, terms might be unfamiliar to the audience, but the general idea is you first want to formalize the playing ground within which you're going to look at the problems. Now, once you formalize that model, you can describe different measures of interest within that model, like number of steps in a Turing machine to solve a particular task would be like an analogous to what we consider time or amount of uh, space used by a Turing machine would be analogous to what we consider memory. And then you study a problem of interest. Maybe you have a scheduling problem that you want to solve. Like exams are approaching, so uh, the university is trying to create uh, timetables of exams so that there are very few conflicts and so on. And um, uh, this problem is actually difficult to solve. It's a hard problem. And you can ask a question, uh, what is the minimum amount of resource that you need to solve this problem? 
So you're trying to prove in complexity, you're trying to prove impossibility results that with this amount of time, it's impossible to solve this problem. Or with this amount of memory, it's impossible to solve this problem. Or with this amount of communication, you cannot solve this particular problem. So complexity theory is kind of a pessimistic side of algorithms. You can view it that way. It is trying to prove limitations on what is possible. That's very interesting, especially your example on how the university is using complexity theory to model time limitations. That's really cool. Yeah, so they're not necessarily using it in a very specific case, but what this sort of indicates is that a person who analyzes what problem they're trying to solve can understand why it is difficult to come up with such a schedule and why the university might have to use some certain tricks, some approximation algorithms. Maybe it won't be a perfect schedule, but it will be a schedule that is satisfactory to a large extent. And then certain specific conflicts can be resolved uh, in an ad hoc manner. Oh, fancy. On top of that example, what are its other um, applications? What else can we use complexity theory for, um, not just in theory, but in in everyday practice? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So essentially, um, your uh, listeners might be interested uh, in a book on uh, complexity and um, theory. And there is a famous book by Gary and Johnson, which is called Computers and Intractability, A Guide to the Theory of NP-Completeness. It's an old book. It's from 1979. So there has been a lot of development since that time. But still, for someone who is just interested in this, it's a good place to start. It's very approachable and still a good source to learn about. And the reason that I mention it in this context is because they, um, the book starts out with a cartoon and an illustration, how complexity theory can be helpful. So, and it is essentially the following story. So imagine that uh, you have been hired by a company and you are a programmer and you're trying to solve problems for the company. And then the boss gives you a problem to solve. And it's a hard problem, so you go uh, back to your desk, you start writing different programs, and whatever programs you write, they produce incorrect solutions or they run too long. And you um, don't know what to do at that point. You might go back to the boss and say, look, I couldn't solve it, but then you might get fired or might get reprimanded for that. Uh, Perhaps uh, you couldn't solve this problem because you didn't uh, try hard enough. How do you know? So that's an important question. So if you want to keep your job, (laughs) you better have some tools to be able to justify and say, look, I couldn't solve this problem, but uh, it's either because we believe it's impossible to solve, so don't fire me and no one else would uh, be able to solve it either, or because um, this um, problem is actually uh, very difficult according to this formal reason or to this formal reason. So you can actually analyze uh, these different situations and gain insight into these problems. And uh, it allows you not to waste your time searching for something that might not exist. And... um, I will give some examples which uh, I think might be helpful to understand 
that there is a very thin line in computer science between problems that are tractable and that are intractable. And so without formal understanding of the theory, a person looking at it from the outside naively would be potentially wasting a lot of time trying to solve something that's impossible and not noticing this difference. So here are some examples. So suppose that I give you a problem where you want to uh, find a shortest simple path between two vertices in a graph. Well, turns out that this problem is tractable and there are efficient algorithms and you can do it. Now just change one word and say, now you're looking for longest simple path. Now this problem becomes intractable. And according to everything that we know so far, it seems like there is not going to be an efficient algorithm for it. So very similar problems for on the surface, very different complexity. Now, other examples. Determine if there is an Eulerian tour in the graph, meaning that a tour that visits every edge exactly once. That's doable efficiently. But if you want to determine if there is a Hamiltonian circuit in a graph, which is a tour that visits every vertex exactly once, that becomes intractable. Then testing if a graph is two colorable versus testing if a graph is three colorable and so on and so forth. So you change just one word or one parameter and suddenly the complexity of the problem flips. And the first one you look at it, it's very hard to understand what's going on. So studying complexity theory and its twin algorithm design would uh, sort these things on the shelves for you. That's very true. I didn't think of it about it that way. Most of the examples you gave, it's um, it's it's shown in movies, for example, like uh, what's it called? It's with uh, Matt Damon, I think. He plays a very well-known... Um, nevertheless, he, he plays this very, very knowledgeable student learner who is just a janitor at a university. And from there, he, uh, a teacher takes him under his wing and starts uh, working on algorithms and designing um, some math equations that he's just writing out simplicity. And one of them, it's the three color, color problem on a triangle mm -hmm. and seeing how much, can we, how much can we color with this entire place. It's, um, it's a well-known movie and the name escapes me, nevertheless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, moving on to our next question, uh, since you're talking about algorithms in which contrast complexity theory very much, um, we, I would love to talk about how you're expanding your research into algorithm design. Please explain us what is algorithm design and what its research entails. Yeah, sure. So um, at first I'll start by saying what an algorithm is, although probably people are familiar with it, but uh, an algorithm is just a well-defined sequence of steps that if you carry them out, you will solve a particular task. So in algorithm design, as the name suggests, what you're trying to do is you're trying to design an algorithm that uh, makes uh, very efficient use of uh, the resources. Thus, you can think of uh, algorithm design as sort of a flip side of uh, complexity theory. Right? So on one side, complexity theory is proven impossibility results. And on another side, with algorithm design, you're trying to prove what is possible to do. And when the two match, you get tight results, which is the best. So uh, here is an example that I have, uh, which I think would illustrate perhaps certain features of these two areas. Imagine uh, a checkerboard. And suppose that you want to tile this checkerboard with dominoes. So a domino covers two 
squares, either horizontally or vertically. And when you tile it, you want to cover every square and tiles shouldn't overlap. Now, if I ask you to tile a regular checkerboard, that's like asking for an algorithm. And you would uh, tell me how to put these tiles such that eventually the whole checkerboard is tiled. It's a well-known puzzle that if you remove two opposite corners, you cannot tile such a checkerboard. Now, uh, how uh, that would be like a complexity result. Now you're trying to say that a certain algorithm doesn't exist. How do you prove it? So that's a question to your listeners. <laughs> I invite you to think about it. It's a very interesting puzzle. And essentially what it reveals is that uh, one possibility would be to consider every possible tiling and sh show that it doesn't work. But there are exponentially many of them, so it's not a very good approach. And uh, more generally, if you consider these checkerboards as um, having different sizes and sizes growing to infinity to consider the asymptotic behavior of the algorithm, this approach becomes infeasible. Instead, what you're trying to do now is uh, finding some sort of obstacle within the problem that prohibits those algorithms from existing. And so that's the interplay between two areas, algorithm design and complexity theory. And uh, many people like to think about these as separate. But um, they are separate, but they always come together. When you pick up one, the other one follows right away. Why is that? Because if you're designing an algorithm, suppose you found an algorithm with uh, cubic time, then someone improved it to quadratic time, then someone improved it again, and so on and so forth. How do you know when to stop? Well, complexity theory would tell you when to stop. And uh, on another hand, if you're proving some lower bounds in complexity theory, uh, you can uh, prove uh, a sequence of improving lower bounds, but again, you don't know when to stop. And when to stop is, is going to be given by algorithm design. So you really should be in those two regimes thinking about both upper and lower bounds. Although you can have specialization in a particular uh, area that you prefer. Well, that's interesting. So algorithm design, it's kind of the upper bound of complexity theory, whereas complexity theory is proving impossible results. Algorithm design says, okay, we're going to try to answer it until complexity theory says, yeah, you can't go, you can't go further than here. Exactly. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Cool. So moving on, <laughs> I would love to start talking about um, the nitty gritty of the millennium problem. So for our listeners who don't know what the millennium problems are, it's a set of seven questions which have been posed by, um, oh, what was the university's name? Clay Institute. Clay Institute. Thank you very much, Den uh, Dennis. Um, so they posted these uh, questions out uh, for the public to answer in 2000. There are seven questions that are incredibly, incredibly hard that whoever solves them gets a million dollars US. And as of now, only one question has been answered by um, a Russian mathematician in 2010. And he refused to take the $1 million, which just goes to show that mathematicians don't do this for the fame or the glory. They do this for, for helping out and having fun. One of the questions that is incredibly, incredibly hard, mostly because we don't know most of the tools to solve it, is the P versus NP problem. Now, for our listeners who don't know what exactly does that mean, please tell, uh, tell us, Professor Pankratov, what does the P versus NP problem state? Yeah. 
So we are now in the world of computational complexity theory. So in terms of what um, I was describing earlier, the model is a Turing machine, or you can think about a modern computer, what is possible on a modern computer. And resource of interest is execution time. So P is the class of problems that can be solved efficiently. There is a formal definition about polynomial time and so on, and there is an argument whether it is truly efficient or not, but that's a separate issue. For now, it suffices to think of it as just those problems that you can solve efficiently. Class NP is a um, class of problems for which solutions can be verified efficiently. So uh, just to give an example, uh, you can think of Sudoku. So are you familiar with Sudoku? Yeah, very familiar. I play it uh, in the morning. Okay, that's good. So if I give you a Sudoku puzzle, it takes a while to actually fill in those squares and figure out the correct solution. But if I give you the initial conditions of the Sudoku puzzle together with the rest of the numbers in the squares, you can very quickly verify whether that solution is correct or not. You just check the rules of Sudoku, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and now imagine uh, the Sudoku puzzle uh, being played on bigger and bigger and bigger grids and uh, going to infinity. Mm -hmm. So this uh, would be an example of a problem for which once you have a solution, it's very easy to solve, but it's not necessarily uh, easy to solve it from scratch. And class P, those problems that you can solve from scratch, they form a subset of those problems for which you can verify a solution efficiently in time. And the whole question is whether it is a proper subset or they're equal. So in other words, is it true that for any problem for which we have an efficient verification procedure, we can actually solve it efficiently from scratch? And um, the intuition, I think, of most people says probably not. Verifying seems like a much easier uh, task than actually solving it from scratch. But um, proving it formally turns out to be extremely difficult. So that's the P versus NP problem. Wow. Okay. So it's incredibly hard to prove it. However, the intuition of some people all go to the same position. All right. Uh, most researchers. So there are actually some polls that are being done. So for instance, there is a computational complexity blog that is run by Lance Fortnow and Bill Gassarge, and they make uh, polls of researchers. What do they think? Uh, is P equal to NP? Is it not equal to NP? Is it perhaps independent of the system of axioms? Uh, <laughs> and so on. And most people believe that they're different, but there are some uh, famous researchers that think that they might be the same. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. So let's say one day we, we have a solution to this P versus NP problem. What exactly do we gain from it? Yeah, so that's a very loaded question. <laughs> we can talk about it for days, but I'll give a short answer. So the interesting uh, feature about P versus NP problem is that um, inside the class NP, you can isolate those problems that are the hardest among this whole class. They're called NP complete. And it turns out that a lot of practical problems that we wish to solve, they are NP complete. And uh, all those NP complete problems, they are essentially equivalent to each other in terms of complexity. So if you find an efficient algorithm for one of them, 
you would be able to efficiently solve all the rest. And that includes problems such as uh, timetable scheduling, routing, um, new drug design, and so on and so forth. So a ton of, there is over 3,000 quite practical problems that are NP-complete. Now, uh, what is going to be the outcome of resolution to P versus NP is going to largely depend on which way it is resolved. On one hand, you could show that, uh, for instance, P is equal to NP, and you prove it by exhibiting an efficient algorithm that you can actually run. And that's going to have a tremendous and profound implications because it is going to give humanity the ability to solve all those problems efficiently. And that's going to lead to such a, a technological revolutions, the likes of which we haven't seen before. But uh, on another hand, some other areas which are important to us will be completely uprooted, such as cryptography. It would need to be completely redone. But you could also prove that P is equal to NP, but not give a practical algorithm. Maybe it's a non-constructive proof. Maybe it's an algorithm with very large running time. And then you would learn a lot of techniques and you gain new understanding. And that's sort of uh, there. The, um, the benefits would be similar to what happens if you show that P is different from NP. It's not that our entire life would suddenly change because that's what most people assume anyway. But um, we would uh, gain a lot of understanding. And in mathematics, what it means is that uh, it will give us uh, proof techniques, which will allow us to solve a lot of other problems. And what P versus NP problem points to is that there are some very fundamental aspects of computation that we don't really understand. Computation is very bizarre. It's very powerful. We don't know. Uh, what uh, can be done and what cannot be done at a very deep level. And so understanding that is going to open up uh, huge areas in mathematics and theoretical computer science. That's very true. Um, one of the um, videos that I've seen on the internet uh, regarding P versus NP stated that technology is still new, relatively speaking, compared to like calculus and the new like functions of mathematics. It came out, what, in the 18th century, whereas computers, computational analysis, complexity theory is still relatively new to our understanding. And there's still a lot of broad concepts that left to, that are left to be um, understood, yeah. uh, like cryptography that you mentioned. Um, another fun thing that most people say is P versus NP will lead to the cure of cancer, <laughs> which is a big stretch if, if you hear it just out of context. But some people have shown that... Um, protein folding, which is one of the basis of uh, biology, <laughs> it, it relates to the proper folding of a protein. And when it breaks down, it uh, will then be transmitted into your brain and cause a blockage between your neurons, thus leading to Alzheimer's dementia. And people are saying that it's related to P versus NP, many researchers. And by solving P versus NP, we could properly fix up protein folding. Mm -hmm. Well, if you you mean if you have a positive resolution by an efficient algorithm, that is going to have a profound effect there. Yes, and um, actually you brought up an interesting point, and I think this is going to be uh, interesting to a lot of um, listeners. So Scott Aronson uh, has a nice video which uh, I recommend you check out. It is called uh, if you type in Scott Aronson on NP and physics into a search engine, you will find it. 
and I suggest you to watch it. It is uh, quite uh, mind-blowing because what he discusses are the interplays between uh, P versus NP and uh, computational hardness and what kind of implications it has for the physical world. And it turns out that there are a lot of connections. So the protein folding that you mentioned is one of them, but there are a lot of other things. For instance, if you assume that P is not equal to NP, then it um, prohibits time travel. Uh, because if you were time travel into the past, at least like uh, some closed uh, curves in the time space. And the reason is that uh, if uh, those existed, you could uh, build a computer and make it solve a problem and then send it back in time and get the answer faster than you could otherwise. So <laughs> if you're interested in those sort of uh, ideas, then this uh, you would enjoy this video. It's a lot of fun. You're talking to someone who um, watched Back to the Future on repeat as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotta watch this video. You say it's uh, from Scott Harrison. Scott Scott Aronson. Okay. So it's S C O T T. That's the first name. Double A R O N S O N. That's the last name. And it will be on NP and physics. All right. Um, I highly encourage our viewers to watch that if they um, if they share my interest of time travel. Go right ahead. So we're approaching the end of our of our podcast. So thank you so much, Dennis. This is uh, this has been like very eye opening for me. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I feel like uh, students um, would love to talk more about it. So what's the best way for them to reach you? Do you have an email, a LinkedIn? Yeah. So my email is uh, the easiest way to reach me. So it's my first name dot last name at concordia.ca. Another way would be to find my homepage uh, through a search engine. And there are a lot of uh, ways to contact me there that I mentioned too. All right. And do you have any advice for students who have similar research interests as you? Yes, uh, I have a lot of advice. <laughs> so I would uh, suggest that um, you first study and read a lot. So attend conferences, read conference proceedings, talk to people. And once you find some problem that, uh, or some area that catches your interest, uh, you can actually define some problem for yourself that you wish to answer. It could be a toy problem. It doesn't have to be a big problem. But once you have that problem, you can continue studying the area alongside trying to solve that problem. And so having like an active project going on enriches your studying so much because now it, you have a purpose, you're on a mission. And uh, that is something that I found best ways of learning a, an area. And alongside, you might get some results, which is even better. I would also encourage working in groups. I know that uh, there is uh, an image of a mathematician researcher who is locked in a cage and trying to solve something. But that's uh, not the way things are done nowadays. So actually work is done in groups, problems are difficult, and it's a lot more fun to work together. And uh, don't be intimidated uh, when you see some people who are uh, far ahead of you on this path, on an academic path. They might know a lot more, they might seem very knowledgeable and so on. But actually, we're all in the same boat. And you can see by this P versus NP question is that we really don't know what's going on. 
So all the, these people, they know a lot of techniques and so on. You can ask two or three questions and very quickly reach the limits of their knowledge. So uh, we're all trying, we, we don't know what's happening and we're trying to figure out together. And lastly, I would uh, suggest to uh, be kind to others and to yourself and work in groups, be kind and enjoy the process and you'll have a lot of fun. That is so sweet. <laughs> that is very, very good advice, Dennis. That's very true. <laughs> All right. So to conclude, in this episode, we talked about the different branches of complexity theory, why it's an interesting topic, and the role it plays in modeling. Uh, we also took a deep dive on algorithm design, its relation to complexity theory, and how they both relate to each other in which complexity theory is kind of an upper point, an upper pivot point where algorithm design has reached its limit of trying to solve a problem. Furthermore, we discussed the infamous millennium problem, P versus NP, and discovered that we have a lot left to discuss on that subject. Thank you so much, Professor Fankratov. Thank you for uh, joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, of course. Thank you all for listening. Do not hesitate to reach us. All of our socials are on the MASA website. On behalf of all of us from MASA, we wish you all the best of luck. Stay safe. Mm -hmm.